This meeting of the Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I want to thank Ambassador Jeffrey and Indic for being here. Um, I know Ambassador Indic has a hard stop at 11 o'clock, and we'll try to honor that. This hearing is part of a series of events uh, we are holding this month to prepare members of the committee to evaluate a possible nuclear agreement uh, with Iran. Um, we're not here today to, spoke, to focus on the specific parameters. Uh, just for edification, last night we met in a classified uh, setting with three of our uh, leaders of our labs from around the country and the Secretary of Energy, and it was a very technically focused uh, briefing. Matter of fact, we had a tremendous attendance and people were most interested in many of the technical details of the deal. The rest of the month, uh, we'll have similar hearings so people are prepared uh, as of June 30th if an agreement is reached to really be able to assess that and not be starting from a cold start, if you will. But uh, we appreciate you being here today to help us understand some of the regional implications of a deal. Um, this is uh, intended to highlight some of the concerns that the administration um, is so concerned about uh, reaching an agreement with Iran. Some of the regional alliances that we have uh, are not being really looked at, some of our U.S. interests. So against the backdrop of unprecedented turmoil in the Middle East, the administration is negotiating a nuclear agreement with the arch rival of many of our closest allies. Instead of reassuring our traditional allies that the United States will remain a friend, some would say that the administration has implemented a string of incoherent and self-defeating policies, and I know y'all will discuss those uh, back and forth. The administration has threatened to revoke support for Israel at the UN while accommodating a nation that is dedicated to the destruction of Israel. They have rebuked the Emirates for striking ISIS in Libya while asking them to strike ISIS in Syria. They have withheld military equipment from Egypt, Bahrain, and Qatar while asking them to join in the fight against ISIS. They have criticized Saudi Arabia for acting in, Ye in Yemen while providing the Saudis uh, military assistance for the same operation. So there's a lot of cross currents here that are difficult for some of us to, to string together. In Iraq, Iraqi leaders are increasingly turning to Iranian-backed militias in the fight against ISIS. And perhaps most tragically in Syria, thousands of Syrians continue to die at the hands of Assad and his Iranian backers, while the administration implements a strategy consisting of the ineffective use of military force uh, to be used only against ISIS itself. And I think you may have seen a communique that came from one of the leaders of the Syrian opposition where they were asked to sign a statement saying they would only, they're being trained and equipped by the United States, uh, but they can only use uh, that potential against uh, ISIS and not against Assad. I know they sent out a communication saying that they were going to stop the training and not participate. I understand sometimes that's a negotiating point, but certainly somewhat alarming. As Iran deepens its influence in capitals from Baghdad to Damascus to Beirut to Sana'a, the perspective of many in the region is that the United States uh, is Assad's air force in Syria and Iran's air force in Iraq. I will say I was in Iraq recently and it really did feel like while I support what we're doing with the 3,100 personnel we have there, it really felt like what we were doing uh, is helping create a better country for Iran and Iraq. Uh, even though, again, I support what, uh, what is happening there. It feels very much that way with their infiltration into the parliament, 
and their tremendous uh, uh, efforts on the ground. As we begin to look at how to evaluate a prospective nuclear agreement, we cannot ignore the lack of coherent American leadership in the region has left a vacuum that will continue to be filled by violence. Without defined, committed engagement to counter Iranian regional aggression and to support our partners, the need for American involvement will continue to grow as conditions deteriorate. In your testimony today, I hope you will touch on what I will see as some of the puzzling claims from the administration about what an agreement with Iran would mean for the region. One of those claims is the apparent view of the administration that Iran will become a stabilizing force uh, in the region. President Obama said in a recent NPR interview that opening up Iran's economy through sanctions relief in many ways makes it harder for them to engage in behaviors that are contrary to international norms. I know that, again, many of our allies are concerned that in accessing $150 billion potentially over time and having a growing economy will have just the opposite effect and cause them to be even more strident in the region. Do you accept the view that the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, a nation that has directly contributed to the deaths of thousands of Americans, would somehow reform their behavior after being enriched and empowered for pursuing an illegal, an illegal nuclear program? And finally, I hope you will touch on what the administration portrays as a choice between war and a deal. I think that's a false choice, and again, I, I look forward to your testimony today. I want to turn it over now to our distinguished ranking member and appreciate uh, his cooperation in and, and every effort, and uh, I look forward to your comments. Well, Mr. Chairman, first of all, thank you very much for convening this hearing. Uh, uh, this is an important month, and I, I think we have uh, already started uh, with the briefing last night and today's hearing uh, in the right way uh, to keep not only our committee but the United States Congress uh, very much informed and involved in what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, as, as I explained to you last night, uh, after I left the uh, committee briefing, I went to the French Embassy. Uh, Mr. Indyk was there, uh, along with about 50 other um, uh, people who are very much engaged in Middle East policies. The, uh, the theme of the evening was a discussion about the Middle East. And uh, there were um, many um, uh, people who expressed grave concerns about what's happening in the Middle East for good reason. There's just about every country in the Middle East is at war. And uh, there's a lack of stability in that region uh, that affects U.S. interests. There's no question about it. But what I found last night was they were very short on um, uh, recommendations on how to, we should proceed. Uh, and let me just point out, the United States is deeply involved in the Middle East. There's no question about that. We're deeply involved with our military. We're deeply involved with our diplomacy. And we're deeply involved in building coalitions uh, to advance uh, goals in the Middle East, which I think are universal, and that is respect for human rights and all ethnic communities, territorial integrity. These are important. Uh, goals that we are trying to achieve in the Middle East. They're not easy to achieve, uh, but they cannot be uh, attained without the U.S. involvement, and the United States is clearly involved. Uh, throughout that discussion last night, Iran was mentioned. Probably the most, the country was mentioned the most was Iran. And we know there are many, many problems in regards to our Iranian behavior. Uh, we know that uh, Iran is one of the major violators of the basic rights of its own citizens. Uh, we know that it is a sponsor of terrorism. 
We know that they have influence in so many countries in a negative way, in Yemen, uh, and the Saudis, of course, have expressed their grave concerns about the Iranian influence in, uh, in Yemen, what they're doing in Syria and Iraq, and compromising our ability to go after ISIL. There, there are so many areas that we are concerned about Iran. But what we have concentrated on at this particular month is whether we can achieve a diplomatic solution to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapons state. And Mr. Chairman, I just really want to underscore your leadership and how incredibly important that was in order to get the Iranian Nuclear Review Act of 2015 signed by the President and acted into law. It's now the law. And this committee played a critical role in, in achieving that accomplishment. And it did several things, but I still want to underscore this one. It showed unity, unity here in our government that we're focused on Iran, not on the fights in Congress. And it set up the right way uh, to review uh, a potential agreement reached between the P5 plus one and Iran. And that's exactly what we should have done. And I, and I really do applaud your leadership and the work of every member of the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee. Which brings us to what do we do this month? And uh, as, as the chairman pointed out last night, we had, I think, a very helpful discussion in a closed set setting uh, in regards to the technical aspects of what an agreement needs to include. And today, we're, we have two experts who can help us understand the consequences of an agreement with Iran as to U.S. involvement in the Middle East, which is a, this is, it's not in isolation. There are many other areas that are involved, and what will an agreement mean for the U.S. in the, in the, in the Middle East? Uh, I understand we're not going to talk about the specifics of an agreement today, but I think we all agree that the diplomatic course would be the best with Iran uh, complying with an agreement that would provide ample time before any potential breakout that we could discover if they are violating the terms of the agreement and take appropriate action, because any agreement's not based upon trust, it's based upon uh, terms of an agreement to make sure that we can keep Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state. Uh, one last point, if I might. If we're successful in reaching a diplomatic agreement, we've removed one threat, that is a nuclear Iran. That's an important goal for us to achieve. But then what does Iran do next? Do they take a course of joining the community of nations in peaceful activities and nonproliferation? We certainly hope that would be the case, but we don't have any illusions that that will automatically occur. Or do they act uh, with the increased economic empowerment to have more negative impact in Yemen and Syria and Iraq and uh, spreading terrorism. Uh, we need to be prepared in how the United States can best act to make sure that the Iranian activities are, uh, are channeled towards positive rather than negative activities. And then lastly, uh, if we're not able to reach an agreement, we also need to be prepared as to how we act to make sure Iran does not become a nuclear weapons state. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Thank you very much. Um, we'll now turn to our witnesses. Our first witness is the Honorable James Jeffrey, currently with the Washington Institute. Ambassador Jeffrey pre previously served as the Deputy National Security Advisor to President Bush, Ambassador to Albania, Turkey, and Iraq. We thank you for being here. Our second witness is the Honorable Martin Endick, Executive Vice President of the Brookings Institution, 
Ambassador Indyk has twice served as ambassador to Israel, and most recently as the U.S. Special Envoy for the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Both of you have done this often. Uh, you can summarize uh, your comments, and obviously your written documents will be entered into the record. We thank you very much for being here and look forward to your testimony. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cotton, members of the committee. It's an honor to be back here. The question of Iran, as you've just said, uh, be it in the nuclear context or in the regional context, is one of the most important issues today in the Middle East. But it's not the only one, because we're dealing with a region, again, as you said, Senator Cotton, that is in crisis, a set of crises we haven't seen since the end of the Ottoman Empire almost 100 years ago. And these crises impact our vital interests in the region combating terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, supporting our allies and partners, and ensuring the free flow of hydrocarbons for the world economy. <clears throat> the uh, action of the U.S. Congress in passing the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act uh, is a step in the right direction because it will allow the American people to have a say in something of great importance to their security as well as the security of the people in the region around the world. As we don't know at this point what an agreement will look like, at best, we only have a sketch of the possibilities based upon the uh, April 2 uh, understandings. Uh, we can't make a final determination. Obviously, that'll be based on uh, verification questions, uh, uh, what happens with the nuclear materials, and uh, the status of the infrastructure. But in any case, uh, in looking at Iran's program, it's important, again, as you said, to put this in the context of its actions in the region. And I would uh, propose the following as areas of consideration. First, agreement cannot be considered without looking at Iran's record of destabilization throughout the region. Either an Iranian nuclear weapons capability or an agreement that grants Iran a special status just short of having a nuclear weapons capability would pose extraordinary new threats to a region already under stress. Second, uh, it's the nature of the regime itself. Two of my colleagues at the Washington Institute, Mehdi Halaji and Sona Chaptai and I, uh, published a piece in the New York Times April 26th. We wrote, Iran is a revolutionary power with hegemonic aspirations. In other words, it is a country seeking to assert its dominance in the region and will not play by the rules. Any decision on Iran's nuclear deal must bear this sobering thought in mind and must not read Iran's willingness to sign an agreement as a change of heart about its ultimate goals. I'm not passing a decision on the agreement itself. We signed agreements with the Soviet Union uh, on nuclear issues when we knew they were out to, as Khrushchev said, bury us. But we did this with our eyes open. We need to do this with Iran as well. Third, uh, in particular given Iran's role in the region, no nuclear agreement is better than one that might push back by some months Iran's ability to break out a weapons capability if such an agreement would undercut the current coalition. Fourth, the administration's assertion that there's no alternative to approving an agreement is incorrect and tantamount to advocating that any agreement is better than a none. Uh, were Iran to walk away from the agreement uh, that was uh, laid out in general terms in April, uh, the United States probably could ensure that the international sanctions currently in place stay on. If we decided in the end to 
not go along with an agreement such as the one uh, laid out on April 2nd. I think it would be hard, frankly, to keep the international sanctions uh, that the EU and that other countries have put on, but we would have other means to do this. But in the end, getting to your point, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, any agreement is based upon our willingness to use military force to stop Iran from trying to achieve a breakout capability, trying to achieve a nuclear weapons capability. We can't get around that fact. The administration officially has that as its position, that it will act if Iran does that. But these words are undercut constantly by uh, arguments that uh, military force will have no uh, effect or will have little effect or it will lead to war. Uh, having spent a fair amount of time in war, I don't say this lightly, but uh, uh, it's unlikely that we would see anything like Vietnam or Iraq. We have tremendous military capabilities if we need to. I hope we don't. Uh, finally, there is the issue, as you said, of reassuring our friends and allies. Camp David was a step in the right direction, but it focused only on conventional threats to these Arab states. That's not what they're worried about. They're worried about infiltration of the Arab areas, as you said, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, by Iran in many different ways. Iran's equivalent of the little green men. So in short, in looking at this agreement, uh, what's important is not only what's in the agreement, but our willingness to use force to back up uh, our commitment that they do not ever get a nuclear weapon and our willingness to push back against Iranian efforts throughout the region. Uh, those are the three issues that I think are crucial. Thank you, sir. Mr. Ambassador. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, gentlemen, uh, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to uh, testify today uh, on this uh, critical issue, and I want to applaud uh, all of you, if I may, for the way in which, uh, as Mr. Cardin said, you came together and uh, drafted and passed legislation which will give the Senate a very important role in, in uh, overseeing uh, the details of this agreement. And I also applaud the deliberate way in which you are going about uh, uh, making sure that you understand the technical dimensions of this, which I couldn't come close to understanding. So thank you on, on behalf of all of us for, for taking this so seriously. Uh, I think that uh, if you are presented with an agreement, uh, you will likely have to make a choice either to endorse it, uh, an agreement that will remove sanctions on Iran, but should ensure that it remains nuclear weapons free for at least 10 to 15 years. Or on the other hand, to reject the agreement, which would leave Iran three months from a nuclear weapon under eroding sanctions. It is a difficult choice. In making that choice, you will need to take account among other things, are the regional implications of the deal uh, and what can and should be done to ameliorate the negative fallout from such an agreement in the region. And that's what I've endeavoured to address in the short time available to me today. In my view, if the arrangements currently being negotiated for inspection and monitoring, together with the mechanisms for reimposing sanctions should the Iranians be caught, cheating, if those are robust enough to deter and detect Iranian cheating, the deal will be worth upholding. In other words, the likely regional implications of the deal, in my view, are not sufficiently negative to justify opposing it. 
Indeed, given the state of turmoil engulfing the Middle East, ensuring a nuclear weapons-free Iran for at least a decade and tight monitoring of its nuclear program for much longer than that will help remove a primary source of tension and may foster greater cohesion amongst our partners in the region in dealing with the other sources of conflict and instability there. Put simply, everything that we're all concerned about in the Middle East will become much greater, um, uh, a much greater concern were Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, one question that I think is on the minds of a lot of people is whether this deal will uh, lead our regional allies uh, to decide that they too should pursue a nuclear weapons uh, program or at least a civilian nuclear program that would give them ability to cross over to nuclear weapons. The former Saudi ambassador to the United States has said that whatever Iran has, we will have the same. And that has fueled speculation that the Saudis and others, Egypt, Jordan, uh, perhaps Turkey, will uh, go down the nuclear road as well as a result of this agreement. That would be a bitter irony indeed, Mr Chairman, since the whole purpose of, of this agreement is to prevent a nuclear arms race in the region. So it would be ironic indeed if it were to spark one. I actually do not believe that there is a high risk of that happening. And, and to put it simply, why would Saudi Arabia, uh, which has not embarked on a nuclear program, for the decades in which Iran was pursuing one, now decide to go for a nuclear program in the context of, of a, a deal in which serious curbs were go are going to be placed on Iran's nuclear program. Plus, if they want the same, then they would have to agree to the same kinds of inspections and arrangements that will be imposed on Iran as a result of this agreement. And I find it hard to believe that the Saudis would be prepared to do that. Much the same applies to the others. Egypt talks about a nuclear uh, uh, program, the same with Jordan, but they do not have the scientific capabilities, the costs, the time, and the restrictions that they would have to accept, including the additional protocol that Iran will accept as part of this agreement. It seems to me make it unlikely that we need to uh, face that kind of problem. What about Israel? I think that Israel's leadership is deeply alarmed by this, to say the least. Uh, and has good reason to be concerned about the intentions of the Iranian leadership. Uh, and they have the, the duty to take that seriously. But uh, since this agreement will turn the clock back on Iran's nuclear program, placing it at least one year away from a breakout capability for the next 10 to 15 years, Israel has no reason to preempt for the time being. And I think that Israel's concerns later on about the way in which this agreement could pave the way to a nuclear weapon can and should be addressed, including by the Congress, in terms of entering into agreements with Israel to expand its assistance, to give it the capability to defend and deter against a possible uh, nuclear Iran, which as a result of this deal, I believe, will be put off long into the future. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony. I know we've got a lot of participation. I know Ambassador Indic has a hard stop at 11, so I'm going to defer on my questions. I may interject one or two along the way and defer to ranking members so that other members will have the opportunity to ask questions. 
Well, well thank you, Mr. Chairman. And again, let me thank both of our, our witnesses. As, as I said in my opening statement, if we reach an agreement with Iran, if we're successful in uh, having a, an agreement that prevents them from moving forward with a nuclear weapon program, there are still many issues in our relationship with Iran. So I just want to sort of crystal ball where we are after an agreement. Uh, Iran could very well continue its current policy of supporting terrorism, its interference in so many other countries that are uh, uh, making it very challenging uh, for our, uh, our uh, partners in the region. Uh, how do we influence the Iranian calculations? We've seen in the past that the passage of sanctions in regards to their nuclear proliferation was effective to bring them to the table to negotiate and we hope reach an agreement. What type of strategic alliances and what type of actions should the U.S. be contemplating in order to uh, uh, affect the calculation Iran is using in its engagement in Yemen, its engagement in Lebanon, its engagement in Iraq and, and Syria? Uh, do you have any uh, advice as to where we should uh, be trying to develop those types of alliances and strategic partnerships? One last point on this, and that is, you know, uh, in the last 10, 15 years, our strategic partnerships in the region have changed. You know, we've had very close relations with Egypt. That went through a very difficult period. We're trying to rebuild that today. Jordan has been a, a, a trusted a strategic partner for a long time, but there have been issues in, in regards to that relationship. Uh, the only partner that we've had that's been a consistent partner to the United States has been Israel. And they, of course, have problems with where, where we're heading on the Iranian uh, arrangements. What advice would you have for the United States to plan in a post-agreement uh, Middle East with Iran? Uh, thank you, <coughs> Senator Cardin. Uh, the, uh, the problem of rolling back uh, Iran's nefarious um, activities uh, in the region, in the places that you've focused on, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, uh, Yemen in particular, uh, is that they have been able to exploit uh, two advantages uh, which we have a hard time dealing with. First of all, uh, the collapse uh, or erosion of the effectiveness of state institutions in these countries uh, provides fertile and low-cost uh, ground uh, for them to, to exploit by building parallel uh, institutions, in effect, uh, to ha exercise considerable influence uh, in these countries. And when they do so, they do so by uh, taking advantage of the fact that there is a Shia population uh, in each of these countries that is open to their influence, whether it be through cash or, or arms or, or training. Uh, and they have, of course, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps specifically designed uh, for that purpose, and, and they're very effective at it. Uh, and so that combination uh, presents a, gr a great <coughs> vulnerability and therefore uh, presents a great difficulty in terms of how, how we can counter it. Um, the answer lies essentially in strengthening the, the institutions of governance in, in those countries. Um, but that is a, a difficult uh, challenge. Um, 
which we don't usually do very well. Uh, I think you used the word partnership and partners, and I think that that is essential uh, in this effort. Uh, first of all, yes, we have to provide strategic reassurance that we are not about to abandon our traditional allies, whether it be Israel, Egypt, Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states. Uh, and, and that's a very important, part, important adjunct to the process of doing this deal with Iran. Uh, but then we have to work with them, particularly, of course, the Sunni Arab states, in terms of, of building uh, capabilities to go in and bolster uh, the uh, institutions there that, that can um, counter uh, the vulnerabilities that Iran exploits. Uh, people are fond and now, uh, particularly administration spokesmen, of saying that this is a long-term project. Um, and thereby somehow, I think, perhaps trying to escape responsibility, direct responsibility for making something happen on their watch. It is a long-term project. But we have to start now, and we have to start in the context of this nuclear deal precisely because the fear of abandonment, which I think is vastly exaggerated uh, by our allies and traditional partners in the region, needs to be addressed if we are to uh, ensure that we start a process of, of containing and rolling back Iran's uh, destabilizing activities uh, in the region. Mr. Jeffrey. Uh, Senator, uh, Ambassador Indict has outlined uh, exactly what the problems are and a lot of uh, steps that we could take. Uh, a few very specific short-term ones, because long-term we can uh, foresee doing anything anywhere in the world, but the question is, what are we going to do right now? First of all, we have to restore our military credibility. Uh, we have to have congressional support for use of military force if Iran goes to a breakthrough. We have to know what the administration and the next administration's red lines are for when they would strike if Iran did that. Besides the impact of that on a nuclear negotiation, that would have an impact in the region by making people think that we really will live up to our commitments and that we're restoring our deterrent power. In terms of specifics in this region, we need to do more in Syria against Assad. I'm not advocating trying to overthrow him or going to war, but ideas like a no-fly zone, like arming uh, the uh, resistance fight is not just to fight ISIS, but also to fight the Assad government, to basically ensure that the other side, Assad and his friends, Russia, Hezbollah, and Iran, understand we're not going to let them win. We're pushing for a negotiated settlement that will ensure that that place remains independent and independent, among others, from Iran. Uh, same thing in Yemen. There are various steps we can do, again, to reassure these people that it's not just their physical security from an Iranian land invasion that they're worried about, but the infiltration of the region by an Iranian, as uh, Ambassador Indyk said, uh, Shia-supported, almost ideological religious movement. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you uh, both for being here today in your testimony and your service to our country. I, I have a question about the money and the sanctions. Uh, today, it's estimated that we have about uh, 140, as much as $140 billion in um, held uh, cash uh, through these sanctions on, on, the, on just their oil exports alone. President Obama back in April mentioned uh, that there would be a signing bonus. Uh, we don't know any details about that, but we've seen estimates as high as $50 billion on that. Um, you know, Iran right now is producing their, their potential capacity somewhere around $36 billion annually. 
in terms of oil exports. Uh, that, that's, that's larger than Venezuela, to put it in perspective, and that's just an estimate. Um, <clears throat> Iran spends about 10 to 17 billion a year on their current military. Those are estimates that, that we've seen. That sounds awfully low to me, but uh, those are the estimates that we've seen. So it puts it in perspective that they're about to have a cash windfall. And what I'm concerned about with their nefarious uh, history of supporting terrorists around the world, what, uh, what's your two learned opinions about what, what we can expect from this windfall of cash? I don't think it's going to go to domestic programs. Uh, so the question is, and it looks like we have two differing points of view here, I'd really be interested in both your points of view about what we can expect uh, given this windfall of cash upcoming uh, at the end of these negotiations, if in fact we get a deal. Uh, Ambassador Jeffrey? Sure. Uh, Senator, thank you. It begins with the idea, do we think that signing this agreement uh, is going to either flip Iran into being a status quo power in the region or serve as some kind of encouragement that that will happen over the longer term? I see no evidence of that, given Iran's past and given its uh, uh, ideological and religious role in the region uh, and the very... Uh, uh, strong efforts it has made, not just under the current regime, but frankly under the Shah, to have a hegemonic position in the region. I think we can expect that to continue, and frankly, we've seen this around the world with other countries that have achieved uh, uh, regional power. And uh, Iran is probably not all that different, totally aside from the religious aspect. So it's very hard for me to believe that they will not use some part of that to uh, further enhance their efforts from Gaza to Lebanon, to Iraq, to Syria, to Yemen, and they'll find new places as well. So it'll be more of a threat because of that. I also think that they will take some of the money and devote it to the domestic side as well because uh, uh, the Rouhani government came to office on that basis. Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, I think that, that we need to, first of all, bear in mind that this is a kind of inevitable uh, cost of, of doing an agreement uh, that puts uh, meaningful curbs on Iran's nuclear program. We need to make sure that they are meaningful, that, that we can uh, ensure that the Iranians don't cheat or we detect them if they do, and that we can put the sanctions back on if, if they violate the agreement. But we don't, if we're going to go ahead with the agreement, we don't have an option but to lift the sanctions. That was, that's the basic deal here. I think you're absolutely right to be concerned about the windfall and, and uh, how it will be used. I think, as uh, Jim has said, some of it will be used for, for the economy. There's a high expectation amongst the Iranian people uh, that this is going to produce economic benefits, and I think the regime will want to do some of that. But they've got a lot of money to spend for other purposes. And I find it hard to believe that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Ministry of Intelligence, uh, who are the main uh, vehicles for spreading their destabilizing influence across the region, are not going to get paid off uh, to go along with an agreement which they have made clear that they're not happy about. Uh, and it doesn't cost a lot of money to do what they've been doing. Um, so uh, a boost to that activity um, could be Problematic. So one example is that the Assad regime in Syria is, is hurting economically now. It's also hurting militarily. But uh, were the Iranians to in, infuse some cash into that regime, it would help, help it hold on. Uh, 
And there are other ways in which it could provide funding and arms and so on to, for instance, the Shia militias in Iraq, uh, which uh, would tilt the balance even further uh, in the favour of the uh, Shia militias versus these nascent Sunni militias that are barely able to, to stand up. Uh, and that's not a good thing. So there are all sorts of ways in which it could become problematic. Uh, having said that, uh, there are things that we can do and need to do uh, to, to prepare for that and to counter it. Uh, and, and that's what's so important about needing to recognise that as a complement to the deal, there has to be a US strategy for the region that is designed to deal with Iran's uh, uh, destabilising activities. Have you seen such a strategy yet? You know, it's, it's, it's nascent, I would say. I think that the Camp David uh, meeting with the Gulf uh, countries is the start to that. It has some specific references, which I think it would be worthwhile for you to, to get further explanation from the administration, perhaps in closed hearings, but there are, there are public references to uh, working on counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, uh, developing capabilities in that regard, cybersecurity, uh, other things. Those are the kinds of things that they really need help with, that we need to be focused on. We've too easily responded to their needs by selling them more aircraft. And that's good for our industries, and I understand that. But in these circumstances, as we can see in Yemen, aircraft aren't the most effective thing. Speaking we need ground. their troops on the ground because of our own reluctance <clears throat> to put troops on the ground. Right, thank you. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've only got a few seconds left. I really want to get to this question. On the S-300s, Russia just announced that they, they've they done this deal and they're going to sell these missiles to, uh, these are, are surface-to-air missile programs. Uh, Russia's used these in the Ukraine, we we're told. Um, and Russia has said, well, this is mainly a defensive weapon, but it also allows, uh, I think, Iran to project power in the region. Uh, Ambassador Jeffrey, are you concerned about this uh, development? Uh, very much, uh, Senator, for several reasons. First of all, uh, while there's no UN uh, resolution or requirement against that, the UN language says exercise restraint in providing weapons to Iran. The Russians just blew through that. And there is no lifting of these resolutions until the UN does so, and it hasn't yet. So uh, that's problem number one. Problem number two is uh, the fact that these do have a capability that is, uh, under certain circumstances, threatening to ARIA power and those of some of our friends and allies. Uh, thirdly, it sends a signal to the region that Iran has a big, and let's face it, very aggressive buddy uh, backing it again, leading to what uh, Ambassador Indyk and I have been talking about, a desire on the part of our folks in the region to say, who's backing us and how are you backing us? Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I said I might interject a question. I'm just going to ask, is it, is it in our national interest that Iran dominate the region as they're beginning to do? And if not, um, should Congress take into account as we look at the uh, details of any deal should we look at the fact as, or look at whether the administration has that countervailing strategy uh, with potentially this much money coming into their hands and their influence in the region, should that be a factor as we look at whether a deal with Iran should be approved? Both of you briefly, and then we'll move to Senator Menendez. Well, I think you're, 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 you're right uh, to focus on the details of the deal. That's gonna be complicated enough. 
in, in itself. Uh, but certainly, I, 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 I don't see any reason why you shouldn't question what the strategy is. I believe that the administration is developing that strategy, but but definitely you should should look into that and see what they're doing because, as I said, it is critical. It's not, in my view, sufficient. The the, the problems that Iran can can create in the region, additional problems to what it's already doing as a result of this deal, is not a reason for not doing the deal, but is a reason for insisting that there be an effective strategy to deal with the kind of turbo boost that the, that, that the Iranians are going to have in the region. As to answer your question about what our interests are in the region, well, uh, basic interests come down to the free flow of oil at reasonable prices which is less important to us directly now, but still critical for the global economy, which we depend upon. Uh, and of course, the protection of our allies in the region, starting uh, with Israel. And in, in that context, domination by Iran would be uh, dangerous for, for all of those interests, and therefore something that we have traditionally opposed and I think should continue to oppose. Uh, very quickly, Senator, I agree. The answer is absolutely not. Furthermore, our whole foreign policy since World War II, and particularly since 1989, has been based upon not allowing anybody to dominate any region. We went into combat against Milosevic for that in the Balkans, against Iran in 87, 88 in the Tanker War, against Saddam in 1991, and then later several times, uh, because if you have that, the whole international order goes down the drain as one regional hegemon dominates the other countries and starts robbing them of their sovereignty and their right to live in peace and follow their own uh, uh, will. Iran has a model for this. One of the more moderate Iranian officials, uh, Hussein Mousavi, and a friend of Rouhani and Zarif's, who was in exile actually, has laid it out, and it basically is a security arrangement in the region with Israel weakened, United States out of the region, arms sales to our allies stopped, and again, Iran playing a predominant role. So they know what they want, and they're working on it. I had one, one, one quick point that occurs to me is that it's important to understand Sunni Arab states will not accept Iranian domination. And so the consequences of a, a, a greater success by Iran in dominating the region will be a, a countervailing effort to prevent that from happening and therefore a deepening sectarian Sunni-Shia uh, conflict. And, and to add to Martin's point, uh, in Sunni Arab states, if not helped, coached, led, and backed by us, are going to go about resisting this domination in ways we're not going to like, leading exactly to this conflagration, Sunni versus Shia, that he just warned about. Thank you both. Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And <clears throat> thank you both for your long service to our country. You know, I, the more I listen to your responses, uh, the more I am concerned that uh, the strategy that should exist under the hope that we will get an agreement that actually could be supported and embraced uh, as a good agreement uh, is uh, a strategy that is all on the come when it should be upfront. Because the turbo boost that you said, Ambassador Indic, is something that we will be behind the curve on. And what worries me as part of that is uh, when 
the administration says to those who are skeptical about the nature of what the final deal will be based upon the interim agreement and based upon the different understandings of that interim agreement and based upon actions like Iran uh, increasing its uh, fuel enrichment by 20%, which may be within the JPOA but ultimately has to be totally eliminated by June 30th. Uh, which is an extraordinary action that they'll have to do either, unless they ship it out, which they say they're not willing to do. So when you tell your adversary that you're negotiating uh, indirectly, if not an agreement, then what? The suggestion it's agreement or war, which I reject. I think there is a third way. But when you send that message, if not an agreement, then what? And when you say that, well, if necessary, we will use our military capabilities, but then undermine the essence of that capability by saying, but it won't have much of a result at the end of the day, the message that you are sending in your negotiation is one of weakness, not of strength. And you let the other side know that you need or want this deal as badly, if not uh, as they do. And that is a dangerous negotiating posture from my perspective. With the lack of a strategy up front to deal with the aftermath and already sending those messages, I think it's a dangerous proposition. So it seems to me that this strategy is something that we've had two years of thinking about negotiations. We would have been evolving a strategy in the hope that we achieved a successful negotiation and know what to deal with in the aftermath. Uh, let me ask you, uh, shouldn't our focus in the region uh, be to strengthen the state system in the Middle East? Yes. Uh, but of course, I'll take that for an answer. Easier said than done, <laughs> said it, but it does. Go ahead. It's I'm very sorry. good to see you here. Uh, just on, on the first point, if I might, uh, I, I don't think that the alternative is, is war, but I do think we, we need to look seriously at what, what the alternative is. Given where we are now, if the Iranians do not agree to a uh, regime that provides verification, inspection, monitoring, and snapback sanctions, then we should walk away, in my opinion, because we will be justified in doing so, and we will have a credible case to make to our partners in this negotiation, the P5 plus one and others, that the Iranians were not prepared to agree to a deal that, that was acceptable. And that's the critical point here. But if they are willing to accept all of our uh, stipulations when it comes to inspection and verification and, and, and snapback, uh, then I think walking away from that deal will have consequences. Okay. It will mean that we will not be able to hold the sanctions. And, and uh, faced with the kind of erosion of, of support, uh, we will have a much harder time dealing with the Iranian nuclear program that will continue and pick up steam. And of then we're, what is, we're three what is, months away from What is verification? What is snapback? What is possible military dimensions? How far research and development can go? How you define those are incredibly important. Because when we started this negotiation, for example, we were told that Iraq would either be destroyed, dismantled by them, or destroyed by us. We were told that Fordo would be closed. 
the reality is neither one of those are the case. Uh, and so, and there's a whole hist of goal, uh, history of goal pulls that have been moved. So my concern is what is the definition of uh, those elements that, that you describe? But getting back to my question, your answer is yes, we should strengthen the state system in the Middle East. Now, is it fair to say that Iran's influence, uh, at least up to this date, has been to destabilize uh, state uh, actors in the Middle East, and we see that in uh, Yemen. Uh, we've seen it, uh, you know, uh, uh, in Lebanon. Uh, we see it uh, throughout the region. Is that a fair statement? Um, Senator, it certainly is. There are two major threats to the state order in the Middle East, and everything, including our security and that of the region, is based upon that. Uh, one is uh, extremist uh, Sunni movements, such as Al Qaeda and ISIS. Another is Iran, which uses both religion and traditional statecraft to try to subvert countries. Uh, and we know the tools. It's denying a monopoly of force by governments. It's winning over the loyalties of part of the population. Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen, for example, some of the Shia militias in Iraq, uh, more to Tehran than to their own countries. And there's a religious element to some of this as well. So uh, This is worrisome. So let me get to two last questions, and that is, if our interest is to support uh, state systems and, ter and Tehran's whole purpose has to be undermining state systems, is it also fair to say that even with the sanctions and the drop in oil prices that have bit significantly on their economy, they are still using a fair amount of their resources to do exactly that, to undermine state actors. Is that fair to say? Uh, yes, uh, it certainly is fair to say, and that's part, part of what I was and if that's referring fair to. And if that's fair to say, then when you have even greater amounts of money, it would seem to me that yes, some of it will go for domestic purposes, but a fair amount of money, if you're suffering and you're using your money not to help your people, but to go ahead and promote terrorism. So when you have more money, you can help your people to some degree, but you can still promote that terrorism. That is a real concern. And finally, let me just say, uh, you know, do you think the Gulf partners looking at, at the Budapest Memorandum uh, think that our guarantees really mean a lot? We told Ukraine that if they gave up its nuclear weapons, uh, that in fact, we would guarantee its territorial integrity. That hasn't worked out too well for the Ukrainians. So you're going to tell that the Gulf region don't pursue a nuclear pathway uh, because Iran uh, is at the precipice of it, uh, and we're going to you know, uh, guarantee your security. I think that's a little tough for the Gulf partners to believe uh, in and of itself. Uh, if you add um, the obligation to keep Israel's qualitative military edge to whatever you're going to give the Gulf partners, uh, and the real concern is a nuclear one, I don't quite see how that works. Well, first of all, I think that, that our Gulf partners are far more concerned about uh, Iran's uh, activities in, in their neighborhood uh, than they are about Iran's nuclear ambitions. Um, and that, that's the only way to explain why they haven't sought nuclear capabilities themselves. They certainly haven't lacked the, the funds to do so. Uh, so uh, I do think that you could see coming out of the Camp David summit that they do care about getting these assurances uh, from the president 
Um, and, and they have in, committed themselves in that communique to endorsing, uh, supporting or welcoming a deal that would have the kinds of, of uh, uh, things that we've been talking about in terms of inspections and verification and, and, and snapback and so on. Uh, but but I, I think that, that what they're looking for reassurance about is that the United States is going to be with them in terms of the problems that they face with Iran in their region. It's not about uh, nukes as far as they're concerned. And that's a, that's a much harder uh, uh, thing for us to, uh, to do for them. We can ex ex protect them against an external Iranian threat. But dealing with the kind of subversion that Iran is involved in, exploiting the chaos and collapse of institutions in that region, is much harder to do, especially if we're not prepared to, to put our own forces on the ground uh, to do it. Then we've got to find other forces to do it, and we've got to look to them to do it. That's why we talk about partnership. That's, it's going to require them to, to work with us uh, on this as well. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Chairman Corker. Thank you both for being here, and thank you for your service. I want to follow up on Senator Menendez's point, because to me, it's absolutely critical. <clears throat> we have done nothing since we left Iraq with all our pulling all of our troops out to demonstrate in the past 18 months exactly what our commitment is, in my judgment. There are, you mentioned the Ukraine. There were conversations about that, we, about whether or not we back the right people in the Middle East, whether or not we would confront Iran in terms of its nefarious activity. But, you know, I, I remember from my business career, the best deals I ever made were deals where I first walked away from the table before I came back because I found out how bad the other guy really wanted to make a deal. And the worst deals I ever made was when the deal was more important to me than common sense. And I worry we're getting into a situation where we are, would not walk away. Do, have you heard credibly, either one of you from your positions, some of the conversations the Iranians have said, like, we won't allow military bases to be inspected, or we're not going to allow this, or we're not going to allow that. Aren't those the type of things they should know we will walk away from immediately? And shouldn't we have made that statement definitively so it's without question? Uh, we have heard these statements. I've heard, uh, for example, the uh, deputy uh, negotiator to Zarif Arachi has, uh, in conversations that did uh, come to our attention uh, with the parliament in closed session in Tehran, say that, in fact, uh, maybe some of these things are negotiable with the Americans. So I think it's still in play. Again, that's the problem we have because we haven't seen the agreement in its final form yet, Senator. Uh, but certainly, those are very, very important points. You do not have uh, full uh, eyes on, which supposedly is critical, to, it is critical to this agreement, if you cannot visit military installations and if you cannot interview uh, their uh, scientists and other technical officials. So that's very, very important. And this is something that the administration should insist on. And if they don't get it, then they should either walk away or wait until they do get it. We must be, we must be believable in our negotiation or we'll get taken. That's, my, that's the point that I want to make. Secondly, on what Senator Perdue raised, is not the Russian, it's the 300, isn't it? Surface. Yes. S300. Yeah. Isn't the S300 capable of carrying a tactical nuclear warhead? I don't believe so, Senator. And again, it's a uh, surface-to-air system. Uh, 
in theory, surface-to-air systems can be refigured to carry uh, nuclear warheads, but frankly, Iran has a really disturbing arsenal of uh, long-range missiles. That's why we're putting the missile defense systems into Europe some three, 4,000 miles away. They have missiles that either can or soon will be able to go that far, which is further, I think, than the S-300 will uh, fly. So its basic threat is to shoot down our aircraft and uh, cruise missiles. Let me ask both of you a question, because I have tremendous respect for your ability and what your service to the country and your knowledge, which I certainly don't have. Let me just ask you this. What do you fear the most about making a deal with the Iranians or not making a deal with the Iranians? What, is our, what should our biggest concern and fear be? Uh, in terms of, of making the deal, I think there are two, two major concerns we've, which we've been discussing. One, one is that they will cheat. Uh, they've cheated before on their obligations on the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, we've seen in the case of Korea uh, that they got away with cheating and, and built a nuclear weapon. So that's got to be the concern within the deal uh, to make sure that they don't have that ability. And I agree with you that if we don't get that, we should be prepared to walk and that you're absolutely right in a negotia any negotiation, as you pointed out, but particularly a negotiation with Iran, being ready and willing to walk away if we can't get the, our minimum requirements is critically important to the negotiations. And I think that these statements that they've, making, they've been making, which actually do not accord with the things that they've already agreed to in the negotiating room, is an indication that they are posturing for their public, that their public, they, that they have a problem with their public opinion. They've raised the expectation of the public opinion there, that there's going to be a deal on their terms. And so I think that actually we have a better ability to walk away than they do at this point. And so that we're in, in fact in a stronger position if we focus on the issues within the parameters of the deal and make sure we get what we need in, in that regard. The second problem is outside the deal. And, and we've discussed that already this morning, which is how do you uh, contain and roll back their activities in the region? You can't do that as part of the deal but you're going to have to have a strategy to deal with it alongside the deal. Senator, uh, in terms of a deal, the thing that I'm most worried about is that we'll wind up looking like we keep on making compromises and therefore we're seen as either weak and that has a huge impact on our ability to deter them in the region or people will think that the U not U.S. government actually believes that this deal will change uh, the tune in Tehran and that they will be uh, potential status quo power or a potential partner in regional security, and I think that's very worrisome. Now, in fairness, you said, what do you worry about either with a deal or without a deal? And having taken a few hits at the deal, uh, here is one of the things that the deal will give us. It will give us more international support. This is important for two things. First of all, the international sanctions, and they're the most effective ones, do hinge on a good relationship between us, the EU, and some of the other players, including uh, China in particular as an uh, Iranian um, oil importer. Uh, but secondly, uh, I've several times cited the importance of us being willing to use military force. Our experience has been, uh, sadly, that when we didn't have international support for us, Iraq and Vietnam being two examples, we had a much harder time. And therefore, international support is a value that you do get in this agreement. Uh, it has to be balanced against other ones, possibly sending a signal of weakness, possibly uh, 
people questioning our deterrence in Tehran. But nonetheless, there is a certain value to an agreement if it's verifiable and if it does give you the one-year uh, time before they could break out. So I'll just follow up. So to understand, a good deal in the definition of your definition and mine of a good deal, which is a good deal for the American people and the people of the Middle East, would be preferable than not making a deal because it would raise our stature with the international community? Is that what I heard you say? Uh, no, sir. There is no good deal at this point. A good deal would be no enrichment. A good deal would be uh, they're out of the business of having a nuclear weapons uh, threshold capability. So it's a question of a bad deal that may be better than a set of other circumstances or perhaps living with the other circumstances. One of the things that a deal does give us is uh, the ability to mobilize the international community if Iran breaks out, and that ability to mobilize the international community typically has been very successful when we've had to use military force, such as in Korea in 1950 or uh, in Kuwait in 1991. Thanks to both of you very much. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to our witnesses. Just a couple of comments and some questions. My, my assessment of the status of the U.S.-Iran dynamic as adversaries pre-JAPOA, pre-November, 2013 was that the combined weight of congressional executive international sanctions were putting deep pressure on the Iranian economy, hurting and affecting the Iranian economy. That helped bring them to the table. But I don't necessarily think that combined weight of sanctions was slowing down their nuclear program. In fact, it may have accelerated their nuclear program. To the extent that they feel felt isolated, uh, you can look at them as a resistance economy. They were putting an unreasonable amount of effort into advancing the nuclear program. So the status before the president and American diplomats engaged in this discussion, I think, was one where the sanctions were working against the economy, but the Iranian nuclear program was accelerating in a dangerous way. During the pendency of the JAPOA since November of 2013, I've been to Israel twice, once in January, February of 2014 and then back in January of 2015. And even the Israelis who are worried about an ultimate deal acknowledge, some grudgingly, some enthusiastically, that they think the JAPOA period has actually been a positive. That the combination of rollback of some elements of the Iranian program together with additional inspections has been a positive. They like that better than the pre-November 13 status quo. Now we move to the situation of what we're going to think about with respect to a final deal. This is a sincere question. It's going to sound like I'm not sincere, but I'm going to ask it this way. I don't view this as a negotiation about whether Iran will be a friend or an adversary. I view this as a question about whether an adversary will have a nuclear weapon or won't have a nuclear weapon. Do, do either of you doubt that the region, the United States, and the world are safer if Iran doesn't have a nuclear weapon than if they do? I think this is the primary benefit of, of, of a deal that is uh, uh, enforceable. Uh, that is that it will give the region uh, and the United States and our allies there, uh, particularly Israel, a 10 to 15 year nuclear free Iran in which we will no longer be faced with this uh, kind of uh, sense that Iran is about to cross the nuclear threshold. In, in, in other words, um, a bellicose Iran without a nuclear weapon may still be bellicose, but a bellicose Iran with a nuclear weapon is really dangerous in terms of potentially throwing its weight around in the region and, and in the world. Correct. And we're talking about a region which is, is in chaos 
uh, and so add nuclear, uh, and, and nuclear Iran to the mix, and then, then the other states in the region will have a very strong incentive to go get nuclear weapons. So we've got a nuclear arms race on top of everything else that's going on there. So yes, we, we need the breathing space. The breathing space is worth something to us. And time is not neutral in this situation. 10 to 15 years, we can use the 10 to 15 years. Let, Roll back Iran. Absolutely. Let me explore now the decision tree of no deal and deal. I think I agree with what the chair said. I don't think no deal automatically means war, but no deal does have some consequences. How important is it to the effect of the sanctions that currently exist and more that we might want to put on that there's an international coalition supporting the sanctions versus the United States just proceeding alone? I'd like to hear both of you talk about that. Um, at this point, it's very, very important because uh, the sanctions that have really bitten deep are the NDAA sanctions, which run third countries through their financial systems, uh, which countries actually could resist, but we had both uh, temporary waiver authority, or, or if they uh, were reducing uh, bit by bit, uh, and frankly, they wanted to help us uh, put Iran under wraps. Uh, so they did cooperate, but the cooperation was getting tougher and tougher if you talk to the people who are actually trying to execute it on the U.S. government side. Uh, so. And the second uh, set of sanctions that are really effective are the EU sanctions, which not only ended all imports of Iranian oil, but frankly, through uh, hitting insurance, uh, funds transfers, banking, and other uh, auxiliary elements of the international trade system, really led to Iran losing more than roughly half of its uh, oil exports. That, combined with the drop in oil prices, uh, put Iran in the economic situation we see. So it's important to maintain that if uh, we can't get a deal. Well, then let me follow up and ask this. So if there is no deal, then it is very critical whether the community perceives that the absence of a deal is because Iran is being unreasonable or they were willing to be at least somewhat reasonable and the United States or other parties refused to make a deal. So if, if it looks like Iran is being unreasonable, there's a greater chance to hold the coalition together to keep sanctions tough if it looks like the U.S. or other partners are being unreasonable, it's more difficult to hold the coalition together. Would you both agree with that? I think that that is exactly right. It depends very much on how the deal breaks down. If if there's a deal that that meets uh, the requirements of the P5 plus one in terms of inspection, snapback, and so on, then and and let's say that the the Congress decides in its wisdom that that this isn't a deal that they can support, so we're responsible for, in effect, walking away. I think it would be very hard to maintain the international sanctions in, in those circumstances. But if Iran refuses mm -hmm. to agree to, for instance, military inspection of its, right. uh, of its military bases, then we have a great deal of credibility in walking away. And I think, actually, we should, because I believe that they will then... Uh, buckle under and accept what we need. Let me, let me ask about the other part of the decision tree, if there is a deal. If there is a deal that generally meets the April 2 framework and Iran accepts it, and we're going to have to dig into the details. I'm particularly interested in inspections. There will be inspections. We want to make sure that they're vigorous, immediate, everywhere. Credible military threat. To my way of thinking, a credible military threat to take out an Iranian nuclear program is combined of some elements. Capacity to do it, backbone, willingness to do it, but also the intel that gives you the information about how to do it. 
Now, we have intel now that's been demonstrated in the past, the intel that we have, and that's not going away. But isn't intel plus the additional information that you get from a, an aggressive and significant inspections regime better than intel without that? And so wouldn't a deal that gives us significant inspections enhance our intelligence and hence enhance the credibility of our military threat? Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely the case. Uh, being on the ground and being able to go anywhere, anytime uh, is, is critically important. We're going to still need the intelligence assets that we've been using um, and, and working with our allies uh, and their intelligence capabilities. But being on the ground makes a huge difference. In Iraq, uh, and I had some experience when I uh, served uh, in, in uh, the Clinton administration on this, when we had inspectors on the ground, even though they were being blocked in various places, uh, you remember that cat and mouse game that we always played, nevertheless, we had a much better insight into I uh, Iraq's nuclear program. And in fact, we were at that point comfortable about retiring the nuclear file because we, we were persuaded because of the inspections, that on that front, as opposed to chemical and biological, we actually knew what they had and knew that, that we were able to monitor it and control it and prevent them from getting nuclear weapons. So I think that that, that was a very interesting example of the way in which both give us an ability to know. And in this case, the inspectors are going to be at the mine head, at the, at the milling, at the enrichment process, at the stockpiling, and, and, and in Iraq, Iraq the, the plutonium reactor, the heavy water reactor. So we're going to have a full visibility on their program, and that goes on for, I think, it was 25 years of that kind of inspection. I think that, that will give us some degree of assurance that uh, we will know if they cheat. Thank you. I will uh, interject that. And that was a good line of questioning, and I appreciate it. The, there is an agreement that we have not had access to that lays out what Iran is able to do from year 10 on. It's called the Iranian Nuclear Development Program. There's a document that outlines that. For some reason, the administration will not share it with us. I've asked both at the energy level, the Secretary of State level, and the Chief of Staff of the President. And so I think that there are legitimate concerns about what happens after year 10, and it, it makes me concerned that their unwillingness to share that with us means they think it's something that will undermine the American people's confidence in what they're doing. So hopefully they'll be forthcoming with that soon. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to the ambassadors for being here today. Uh, in Ambassador Indyk's testimony, um, there was a, a quote that I'll read here. Once sanctions are removed, Iran will be the beneficiary of the unfreezing of some $120 billion of assets. Its oil revenues are likely to increase by some 20 to $24 billion annually. It is reasonable to assume that a good part of that windfall will be used to rehabilitate Iran's struggling economy and fulfill the expectations of Iran's people for a better life. But it is an equally safe bet that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, the Ministry of Intelligence, and the Iranian armed forces will be beneficiaries too. Uh, do we know, do you know uh, what the amount that Iran sponsors uh, terrorism uh, at the level of funding that they actually contribute to funding of Hezbollah and other terrorist organizations? 
It runs, uh, by the estimates I've seen, to the tens of billions if you put in the Syrian uh, operation, which is the biggest one, uh, support for Hezbollah and some of their other activities around the region. We think it's around $200 million or so, and I think that said tens of millions, certainly up to $200 million, according to, uh, to reports. Bill billions, sir. Bill billions? Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Not $200 billion, but uh, probably in the 10 to $20 billion range. Okay. Uh, and the economy is going to turn around. Would this encourage them? Uh, would they stop once this economy turns around from funding that uh, line item? It is almost inconceivable from any analogy or historical example I've seen that a country that has a foreign, aggressive foreign policy, if it comes upon further resources, would then ratchet back. Typically, they will double down and try harder. That doesn't mean they'll use all of that money or even most of that money because they do have pressing uh, domestic needs and it's a, uh, they have a lot of uh, popular pressure to uh, spend more on a consumer economy. So some of that will flow to the domestic uh, side, but clearly some of it will flow uh, almost by all uh, evidence we've seen with Iran and in other countries towards uh, their nefarious activities through the region. And these nefarious activities uh, aren't going to make Israel more safe as a result of this agreement and a, a, growing, uh, a growing economy. Is that correct? And they're not going to make anybody, including the Iranians, safe in the end, Senator. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Ambassador. Uh, and in your testimony, you stated uh, that any agreement should be judged not only on the basis of its verifiable real restraints in Iran, but also by the context within which the agreement would operate, readiness to back it by far more explicit and credible readiness to use force to stop a, a breakout, and a far more active U.S. program to contain Iran's asymmetrical military, ideological, religious, economic, and diplomatic moves to expand its influence in the region. The President has said that there is no military solution. The President has talked that we can't back away now. Uh, could, you, could you explain that remark a little bit further? Uh to the extent I can, because the president has said several different things. First of all, officially he said that he will use um, all necessary measures if Iran were to break out to a nuclear weapon. But he's also said that he doesn't think that a military solution is going to buy you very much. He said uh, the other day uh, to an Israeli journalist that it would give you a temporary stop. That is true. But uh, we've seen military force before against Iraq three times uh, by the Israelis and by us in 1991, then by us in 1998, uh, lead to the uh, termination of weapons of mass destruction programs. We've seen it obviously in the case of Israel striking uh, Syria. And after 2003, when we went into Iraq, that's when the Iranians halted their weaponization program and it's when the Libyans decided that it was high time for them to give up their programs. So military force can have an effect beyond how many targets you hit and how long it will take to reconstitute. It does have a political uh, influence on the other side. So I wouldn't rule it out, never. There has been conversations, uh, I think uh, opinion pieces written in the Wall Street Journal and others uh, talking about this bifurcation in these negotiations of political, political restraint with nuclear restraint. That the agreement seems to sort of have a, almost a tunnel vision on the issue of nuclear restraint without addressing any other areas of Iranian political restraint, and that's uh, uh, ideological, religious, economic, diplomatic moves to expand influence in the region or perhaps use uh, those efforts uh, in nefarious ways uh, against uh, our allies and indeed against the United States. Uh, do you think under these negotiations, have we lost track of the, the fact that we also have other areas that need to be restrained? Uh, I don't think so, and, but I think it's important to understand that it, it, 
um, was not possible to address those concerns in this negotiation without weakening our ability to get what we needed in terms of blocking Iran's four pathways to a nuclear weapon. If we had al allowed the agenda to widen to address the issues of their activities in the region, they would have used it as a trade-off. They would have linked their behaviour in the region to, to the negotiations about their nuclear program. And so they would, you know, if they agreed to do less uh, regional disturbing activity, they would expect us to be more lenient on their nuclear program. We couldn't enter into that. Plus our, our Arab allies said it's none of your business to be discussing those issues with them when we're not at the table because that affects our direct interest. So I don't think it was possible to address it within the context of the deal, but we, need, we do need to address it outside the deal and in parallel to the deal, and that's, that's the burden of, of my argument here. Could I say one other thing about force? I think that the use of force, uh, the threat of the use of force and a credible threat of use of force is critically important in terms of deterring a breakout by Iran or, in fact, cheating on this agreement. But actually using the force has a problem. That's what the president was referring to. That is, and that's what happened in the case of, of Israel's bombing of the Osirak nuclear reactor. What the Iraqis did was they took their whole nuclear program underground. We had no visibility on it. And we were surprised when we actually went into the country in 1992 to discover that they had this a massive nuclear program that we knew nothing about. And that's the danger here that if we have to use force, what we'll end up with is something less than what we can have through the deal itself. 10 to 15 years of, of uh, a nuclear-free Iran versus two to three years by bombing all their facilities, but they've got the know-how, they can rebuild, they will no longer be under any obligations, and they will claim that they then have a justification for getting nuclear weapons because they were attacked when they didn't have nuclear weapons. Ambassador Jeffrey, would you like to respond? Uh, Ambassador Indyk's absolutely right about the Osiric uh, bombing, but I would just add that the reason we went in in 1992 to find that was on the back of American tanks. <clears throat> Thank you uh, both for your service to the country, and, and uh, I think there's been a very good discussion, and you've had some very, very... Um, insightful comments. One of, one of the issues here that, that has been raised is, is Iranian dominance, Iranian um, hegemonic desires, that kind of thing. Do you, do you believe our U.S. foreign policy has contributed to the strengthening of Iran in the, in the region? Some of the decisions that we've made? Well, now we now we get contentious, and I don't mean to be so. Well, but, I'm not. But I'm I not do trying to be contentious. No, I'm I will be contentious. No, okay. <laughs> not you, <laughs> Senator B. Um, because look, again, I go back to to the experience of the Clinton administration. There were we we had real concerns about what Saddam Hussein was doing to his people, and we were constantly looking at what we needed to do to to prevent that. But we were always constrained by the concern that we had that if we took him out, we would open the gateway to the influence of Iran in Iraq. And that was a major concern during, during that time. Now, that's what happened as a result of taking Saddam Hussein out. 
Now, I was in favour of that war, but I was also in favour, similarly today, of doing a whole lot of things that would have prevented that from happening. But, but that's what happened. Once the gates of Babylon were opened to Iran, that opened the way for them to exert their influence across the region. They were already in Lebanon via the Shia community there in Hezbollah, but Iraq was a big prize for them, and it was done courtesy of the US Army and, and the US taxpayer. Ambassador Jeffrey, you, you have the same view? Uh, certainly, going into Iraq uh, was a benefit to Iran, but it didn't have to be as bad as it turned out to be. I mean, there were steps that we could have taken uh, uh, over the what last should, What should we have done? Uh, we could have made uh, it clear that in other ways we would have stayed there longer and that Iraq's security was in our interests and that we were there for the long haul, not trying to get out. Uh, that's the first thing. But second... But, but staying there for the long haul would have meant changing the Shia government in such a way that they were going to be inclusive. You actually think we could have made them do that? We can't I mean, it make... Lo it looks to me like the, that there was just a, a, a real desire uh, in terms of dominance and not being inclusive, and I don't know really how the United States, can you tell me how that they, the United States can make uh, the, the government do that? Uh, the answer is we can't, Senator, and it's a very important point, uh, even at the point of a gun. What we can do is have influence. These are rational people in all of the political parties in Iraq. Uh, some of them are pro-Iranian, some of them aren't, some of them are opportunistic. Uh, in the period from roughly 2008, when the Shia militias were put down by the Maliki government, to uh, roughly 2012, 2013, the country was able to live in relative uh, peace and relative rapprochement between the various groups. Uh, two things happened. One is slowly, in part because we didn't have the influence that we should have, uh, other forces, including Iran uh, leading the charge, pushed towards a more Shia-dominated system. Secondly, and far more seriously, and I think this is the point where we've most contributed to Iran's spread in the region, Syria happened. Uh, nothing in the last 15 years has had the same effect on the region as what happened in Syria and the fact that we didn't react to it. It's delivered repeatedly in bad ways. The rise of ISIS, uh, one of the biggest humanitarian and well, you could, Couldn't you also make the argument the rise of ISIS came as a result about what we talked earlier in terms of what was done in Iraq? Uh, I mean, that, that, the, the, uh, I think there's a, there's a significant connection there to what's going on. But let me, let me ask Ambassador Indyk, I, I He's, he's mentioned Syria, uh, and there should be a no-fly zone. Uh, do you think that should be done unilaterally by the United States, or should it be done collectively through the UN or other multinational organizations? Well, I don't think that uh, uh, UN uh, collective action is, is an option here because the Russians will, will veto it. Uh, is, there but, any, is there any reason to push it anyway to show well, I, look, what, their, what their position is? We, we are operating a kind of de facto uh, no-fly zone in parts of Syria already just because the Syrian Air Force won't fly where air, our Air Force flies. Uh, and we can, uh, there are plenty of ways in which we can affect the calculus of, this, uh, of the Syrian uh, Assad regime. Uh, 
you know, I don't know why we can't take out uh, helicopters that are dropping uh, barrel bombs on Syrian civilians. Uh, would only need it for us to take out one or two, I believe, and and the Syrian Syrian regime would get the message. Uh, so there are certainly things that we could do that I think would would uh, stop short of a formal declaration of a no-fly zone, but would give, give relief to the Syrian people and would send us a, a very important uh, signal to uh, not just our, our Arab allies, but so many uh, across the Arab and Muslim world that, it, that, that are uh, deeply affected by the fact that we're not doing anything. We're flying there against ISIS, but we're not uh, doing anything against the Syrian regime. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for the testimony. I, I've been supportive of these negotiations uh, with Iran, partly because I sense that uh, it would be tough to hold the coalition that we put together together uh, for much longer. And uh, uh, I, I agree with your assessment that it was the international nature, the multilateral nature of the sanctions that really bit, uh, particularly the financial sanctions. And the success came because it was Iran versus the West rather than Iran versus the U.S. And so uh, I think going through these negotiations was probably uh, the only way to really keep this coalition together if Iran doesn't comply now and we can come back and, uh, and it, it won't be that simply nothing will be good enough for the U.S., but there is a material breach uh, that is demonstrated that Iran simply will not uh, uh, live to the agreements that were set out, if, if that is the case. So I, I've been supportive of the negotiations. I, I agree with the formulation that uh, Senator Kane put forward that Iran, that the sanctions were effective, certainly in debilitating their economy, but it didn't do much to slow their drive toward a nuclear weapon. And I don't know how the same level of sanctions, uh, you know, over a, another period of time, uh, why we would expect that to have any different result. Uh, so, but but now, given where we are, and and I agree with formulation that an agreement that really truly does limit uh, their ability to to move forward to nuclear weapon, if only for 10 or 15 years, is better than not having an agreement and then we can focus on the other issues, but that's what I want to ask you a bit about. Uh, Ambassador Jeffrey, in your remarks, you state uh, that in the region, uh, we need a strong commitment from, the region needs a strong commitment from the U.S. Uh, to push back Iran's actions in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere. What would that look like in Iraq? What would a stronger uh, commitment from the U.S. look like right now in Iraq? Um. The Camp David uh, meeting actually had a final statement that had some pretty good language. It said that uh, uh, the parties uh, believe that Iran should be uh, required to uh, agree, engage on the principles of good neighborly relations, strict non-interference in the affairs of other countries, and respect for territorial integrity throughout the region. These are, of course, exactly the things it's not doing. And in Iraq, uh, one reason Iran is gaining influence, and we saw this in the balance between Tikrit and Ramadi, is that uh, we're not as present as we should be. And therefore, the Iraqi people, including even 
many of the Sunnis I know in Ramadi are having to turn to the Shia militias, some of, not all of them, but some of whom are under the thumb of Iran, the Hatib um, Hezbollah, uh, Asal al-Haq, and uh, to a considerable degree, the Bada Corps, those are the three major ones, uh, because uh, there is not an effective Iraqi military. One of the reasons there isn't an effective Iraqi military is that we haven't put our troops, as we've done in every other conflict I've been involved in, on the ground with these units, uh, technically to advise them, to call in air support, but frankly, in many respects, to strengthen their spine and to reassure them that as long as our troops are there, they will get air support, they will get medevac, they will get resupplied, and they won't be overrun because we won't let it happen. I cannot describe what a difference that makes. I saw it in Vietnam in 72. I saw it in Iraq in 2010. Uh, having Americans out there would increase the uh, capabilities of the Iraqi forces tremendously. It would also show America cares. We're willing to put skin in the game. If we take casualties, we're willing to do this because Iraq's important to us. Iran's willing to put people out there. Ambassador Indyk, do you have uh, any thoughts on that? What would a more robust yes, I think I think like? that, that it starts at the political level. Abadi is definitely, the, the Prime Minister is definitely better than Maliki, uh, but his commitment to inclusiveness is somewhat constrained, in particular by pressure from Iran. And we need to be uh, equally uh, assertive in terms of pressing him to go through with the commitments he's made to inclusion when it comes on the political level to the Sunnis. They feel excluded, and that's, uh, as long as that continues, it's going to affect the, the morale of the military, the willingness of, of Sunni soldiers to fight. Uh, and, and so that's point number one. Inclusion is critically important, and we need to be actively engaged in that. Point number two is we should be building uh, more actively the capabilities of the Sunni militias and, and the Kurdish uh, Peshmerga. Uh, again, because of our respect for the sovereignty of Iraq, we're going through the Iraqi government. And the Iraqi government, under the pressure from Iran, is uh, uh, restraining what we can do there. And we need to, I think we've made some kind of breakthrough on that front now that I heard just this morning uh, with the Sunni militias, that arms will be going to the Sunni militias. I think that's critically important. Uh, we need to be arming the Kurdish uh, forces as well in, a, in a, a more robust way. So it's on the military level. I endorse what Ambassador Jeffrey said in terms of, of embedding uh, our special forces, but it's also political and, and arming of the militias. Let me return to the nuclear negotiations for a minute. Uh, if we concede that Iran, uh, what our goal is, is to try to keep them from a one-year breakout period, if we assume they're that close now, what is their motivation, their real motivation now to come to the negotiating table. Wouldn't they have more leverage if they were to complete uh, that march toward a weapon and then negotiate after that? Why do you suppose they're coming to the table now? Do they fear a strike? Or perhaps are they not as close as we think they are? Um, my view, Senator, is they were very close to that point. You remember when uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu went to the UN, I think in 2013, and he drew the red line 
on the 20 percent uh, uh, enriched uranium, they were close to 200 kilograms. When you get a little bit above 200 kilograms, you will have uh, enough for what's called a significant amount, SA of, you've had the briefings, 25 to 27 kilos of uh, 90 percent enriched for at least one nuclear device. So they were right up to that point. But that was also when the international community was really hitting them hard with sanctions. They were having a huge impact on their uh, economy. Also, uh, both Israel and the United States were at least making noises about a military strike. That only not only had an effect on uh, Iran, it had a frightening effect on many of our friends, including the Europeans, who've never seen a war they don't want to run away from. So uh, it may be a bit unfair, but um, they were very nervous about either us or the Israeli striking. So they were willing to do these very, very dramatic sanctions, ending all oil uh, imports and doing other things against Iran. So you had a combination of events that put Iran under pressure, and then it decided maybe we will back off a little bit. But the important thing is they're giving up nothing, and this is on the express... Uh, a decision of the supreme leader. They're not closing anything down. They're not blowing up a reactor like the North Koreans did. Uh, they're not admitting guilt on the uh, possible military dimensions. They're basically just uh, putting things uh, in storage for a while or converting things, but they're not admitting guilt and they're not really changing uh, their entire program to get to this one year. Could I, could I just... Uh add to that one, one point that I think is worth noting about the agreement. They are giving up something very significant when it comes to their Iraq uh, heavy water reactor, which is the most dangerous and expeditious way that they could get uh, plutonium for a nuclear weapon. And they have agreed there to, to reconfigure the core, to ship out the, the spent fuel, and, and not to have any kind of reprocessing. Uh, facility. Uh, that's a very robust measure and it's designed specifically that way because that's precisely the way that the Koreans broke out. Uh, and so while it's true that they haven't blown up anything, as Ambassador Jeffrey suggests, they have accepted the kinds of curbs that we need to be sure that they have blocked, that we have blocked their pathway. We have to be concerned about cheating. We have to be concerned about what happens at the end of the road. But I think that in terms of what, what our negotiators have generated here, within the confines of the Iranians having to be able to say, you know, we didn't blow up anything, essentially is not a bad deal. In that regard, it's a good deal. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, Ambassador Jeffrey, in your testimony, you call for an advanced authorization for use of military force against Iran uh, to prepare for the possibility that they will violate an agreement that has not yet been reached. So this is the committee would, that would have to pass an advanced authorization for the use of military force against Iran. Um, we already have two authorizations for the use of military force that are open-ended, not limited by geography. And we have a third one that is pending uh, before this committee with regard to what the limitation should be for the authorization for military force by the United States against ISIS. Um, 
Could you talk a little bit about what you think should be in that resolution? Uh, what type of military force we should be explicitly putting into that resolution? And what should be the conditions under which this committee passes an, an advanced authorization for use of military force against Iran, given the fact that we don't know uh, what the conditions will be uh, that could possibly then trigger the use of that advanced use of military force in the resolution that you would recommend? Uh, thank you, Senator. To be specific, this is something that would be part of a package if, in fact, uh, the Senate uh, did not take, uh, if we do get to an agreement, the first step, then under the uh, Iran Nuclear Review Act, you looked at the act and you didn't take action to stop the lifting of sanctions, thus the agreement would go forward. This would be uh, a measure to ensure that if we do have this agreement, it is clear to all, including the Iranians, and but also including to our friends in the region, that this isn't a watershed event in our relations with Iran. It's simply a deal to get them to stop uh, moving towards nuclear, uh, capa nuclear weapons capability. So therefore, uh, if they were to try to break out, and they still could do this within a year, uh, under the agreement as uh, we understand it, that current U.S. policy laid out by the President repeatedly is that we will use military force to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Uh, given recent events, including the Syrian debacle, it would be helpful if we knew that the U.S. people through the U.S. Congress supported that action. Can I, can, may I just ask, just so I understand, you want us, you want this committee to authorize the use of military force against Iran explicitly in the event that they violate the agreement or, or in the event that there is no agreement? In the event, with or without an agreement, that Iran is on the verge of getting a nuclear weapon, and the, this administration or no other administration has ever said what that red line would be, that's another issue, but certainly it is U.S. policy that we would use all uh, means at our disposal, there's euphemisms, but it's clear it means military force to stop Iran from actually achieving a military capability. As that is our policy, but as there's some question to our willingness, given the Syrian experience, to carry out that red line policy, it would be helpful if the U.S. Congress were to do that. In particular, well, again, the balance of reason. Necessary. It was not necessary to carry out the red line policy because Assad acceded to what it was that, uh, in fact, um, the goal of um, the administration was, which was to put their chemical weapons under. So, in fact, we did not have to go beyond the red line because uh, Assad accepted the conditions. So, I guess, again, and I'm trying to just zero in here in terms of what you're asking for. Uh, it, 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 is it that um, we should be having this debate now, or should we have this debate after the administration concludes the deal with the Iranians? After it concludes the deal with the Iranians. The other thing with the Syrian thing is... The and if the, let me just understand, and if the deal is one that is acceptable to the United States and to Iran, should we still pass an advanced authorization for the use of military force against Iran? Uh, yes, I think so, because uh, there's many people who think that even with a deal, uh, you're going to have an Iran that uh, either will cheat or will try to uh, get around it. 
What do you think of that idea, uh, Ambassador uh, Indec, that even after we reach an agreement, then this body would pass an advance authorization for the use of military force against Iran? Um, it strikes me as a kind of belt and suspenders uh, approach. We don't, we don't need it. Uh, I'm, I'm wary about it partly because it, in a sense, puts uh, the Iranian uh, finger on our trigger. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure that, that, that that's a wise uh, path to go down. I think the President's uh, statement that he's willing to use all means necessary to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon is clear. Um, we have deployed significant forces in the Gulf uh, and taken measures with our Gulf allies uh, to ensure that the Iranians understand that there is a real capability there. Uh, so if we're trying to get at the question of, of will to actually use that, I think that, that there are other ways that can be done without, in, in effect, uh, producing a kind of automaticity to how we would uh, respond. Well, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I, think that, um, I think that obviously the goal of an agreement with Iran is to move towards a normalization of relations with Iran. Now, is that possible? And we don't know that at this point. But if there is going to be some attempt that is made towards a rapprochement between the Arab and Iranian uh, governments, uh, then surely it's based upon an agreement that doesn't then lead to an automaticity of, of, of uh, action that is already pre um, um, uh, approved by this committee in terms of, of, of use of military against Iran if there's some questionable activity, questions that are raised with regard to compliance with the agreement. So, so I, I just disagree with you, uh, Ambassador Jeffrey. I just think that that would be a dangerous statement for us to be making uh, at a point at which we have reached an agreement that is acceptable to the P5 plus one, uh, and that is going to, I think, actually lead to a, a sigh of relief across the planet, uh, and that this would be an unnecessary escalation in terms of the dynamic that would have potentially have been created between our country and Iran. Senator, one word on this. Uh, I understand your point. Nonetheless, it is the policy of the U.S. government that we would do this. That is announced repeatedly by the President at almost every opportunity when he does talk about uh, the Iranian uh, situation. Secondly, uh, the deal with Syria, the willingness of the Russians to try to negotiate a deal, I believe happened only after this committee passed a resolution authorizing the use of force by the U.S. government against Syria. Uh, I, would, I, would say, I would say again, sir, that that uh, while it is the kind of the sada voce policy of our country that Iran would not be allowed to have a nuclear weapon, the premise of the treaty will be that they are not going to get a, 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 a weapon because there will be uh, full scope safeguards that are in place that will give us the tripwire that we need to know to then have us act as though they're not in compliance or that they will not be in compliance and that we're authorizing military force, I think would complicate dramatically our ability uh, to, in fact, gain the full benefits uh, of the treaty that we're hoping uh, can be negotiated. Uh, thank you, Mr. Thank you. Chairman.
Ambassador Endick, uh, uh, we fudged by 10 minutes. Usually Secretary Kerry comes in and tells us he has a hard stop but stays hours later. I, uh, I did want to uh, give you an opportunity to stay and make sure this is fair and balanced until we uh, end, or if you need to leave and go to your board meeting, uh, you're certainly welcome to do that too. Thank you very much, Senator. I apologize to, to all of you uh, that I um, have to chair a meeting that I convened with 30 people, uh, and I couldn't change that, and I really apologize that I, that I have to leave. Listen, thank you very much for your service, for being here today, and the record's going to remain open for some period of time. If you would answer questions, with we would pleasure. greatly appreciate it, and uh, with great uh, appreciation, uh, you're dismissed. Thank you very much. And with that, Sec uh, Senator Risch. <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Jeffrey, I, I guess I'd, I'd like your thoughts on this. Um, my problem with all of this is I have a thresh threshold question that I have trouble getting beyond, and we've made uh, reference to it here today, and that is the fact that uh, we, when, when, these, when we started these negotiations, I said, this is great. We're going to sit down with the Iranians. We're going to get them to the point where they say, well, we're gonna, we, we want to be a normal country. Uh, we're going to give up uh, uh, meddling in other people's affairs. We're going to give up... Uh, uh, being sponsors of terrorism, we're going we're gonna to actually quit doing acts of terrorism. And then I find out, they say, no, that's off the table. We're not going to talk about that at all. And so here's the problem I've got. If the, the negotiations are regarding what they're going to do over the next uh, 10 years uh, in developing a, uh, a nuclear weapon, but in so doing, if I vote for that, I'm voting for a condition by which we, and everyone here who votes for it, is going to boost the Iranian economy by taking off these sanctions. Uh, and secondly, we're going to release a whole lot more cash in oil. And we know for a fact, we know for an absolute fact, that a portion of that money is going to go to sponsor terrorist activities and are going to kill, releasing that money is going to kill fellow human beings. I don't know who they are, I don't know where they are, I don't know how many they are, but I know for a fact that my vote in releasing the uh, sanctions and releasing the cash is going to result in the death uh, of innocent human beings somewhere in the world. On the other side, they say, oh, no, we need to vote for this because this is so wonderful, we're going to get them to stop uh, building the, the nuclear weapon, et cetera, et cetera. Well, as they build a nuclear weapon, we don't know what's going to happen there. Is Israel, or we may even get the spine to stop them from doing that militarily. Um, but I know for a fact what's going to happen if I vote for this. H how do you morally justify that kind of a vote? Uh, that's a tough question, Senator. I think that if I would make the case for an agreement, uh, it would be, first of all, it's separate from all of its other nefarious activities. As you pointed out, and as we've discussed here today. But, but it isn't separate. Exactly, because of the money. It's, it's tied closely and directly to that. But if the agreement is not only linked with uh, very clear American willingness with our friends and allies to use force against Iran either on the nuclear account, what we just had this discussion a moment ago on, or uh, to block their actions in the region to kill more people. And if that agreement gives us more international support to do just that, 
that would be a case for doing it. That is, in the end, we might be able to be more effective in stopping these guys if it's very clear to everybody that we're really in the business of stopping these guys. And I think what you've heard today from at least me is that it's not clear that we're in the business of stopping them. That's the thing I focus on. I appreciate that, and uh, I hope you can appreciate the dilemma that this, uh, this puts us in. But the second dilemma that I have when, when this whole thing started, and I started drilling down into what we were actually doing here, is that, you know, we're, we're the, the two parties are sitting down at the table and wanting to get to a different point. Um, I, am, I am yet to be convinced that the Iranians are negotiating to agree to get to a point where they will never have a nuclear weapon. Indeed, as I have analyzed this, it seems to me they are, are negotiating for a path and a time frame on which they can count on being able to have a nuclear weapon. Now, this is a 10-year deal. We're dealing with a culture that's 5,000 years old. I mean, 10 years to these people is absolutely, it, it is nothing in the overall scheme of things, even if you stretch it to 15, which people are, are, some people refer to. One of the things that concerns us, and I think it concerns the chairman, is we aren't getting the answers we want about what happens at the end of this 10-year period. Um, even in classified settings, they're not telling us things that we need to know, people who are going to, uh, who are going to have to sign off on this thing. So, if I were the Iranians, I'd say, look, all right, let's, let's cut the best deal we can. We'll get the uh, sanctions off, our economy grows, our people are happy, we're able to use the money to uh, do the research that we need to do to get where we, we want to get at the end of this 10-year period. At the end of this 10-year period, they say, okay, world, we made an agreement, we kept our part of the agreement, now you keep yours and leave us alone, because we're going to build a nuclear weapon. Now, so far, no one has been able to assure me that this agreement is going to be such that the Iranians are going to say, okay, we're going to give up, uh, we're, we're never going to build a nuclear weapon. Everyone is saying, well, that probably isn't what we're going to see. Well, if that's not what we're going to see, then they have effectively negotiated a path and a timetable towards which they can have a nuclear weapon. And so, you know, just putting this off for this period of time seems to me to be uh, not a good bargain at all. Your thoughts? Uh, first of all, this agreement doesn't stop anything. It is an agreement all about a period of time. If everything that the administration on the 2nd of April said happens actually happens, you get approximately one year of notification, assuming that you have inspectors on the scene, during which you can react if they start violating the agreement. At the end of that year, they will be at a point where they can get a nuclear device. At the end of 10 years, Senator, that time period shrinks because two things happen. First of all, uh, the restriction on 5,000 functioning centrifuges goes away. They can increase that uh, to uh, almost any number. Secondly, the limitation on the kind of centrifuges, they're far more efficient ones, the IR4s, 6s, and 8s, that restriction goes away too. Along I've, with even more efficient ones that will be developed over the next 10 years. That, that, that too, although there is a restriction in this, uh, assuming, once again, the rules of my hypothetical uh, cases that they adhere to all the rules, and there are rules that they cannot do any research on centrifuges during that period of time. In fact, that's a 15-year rule. So uh, at the end of the 10 years, with 
unlimited centrifuges because they're going to have 18,000 plus some of these new ones, uh, I've seen uh, indications that within just a couple of months, almost as fast as where they are now, uh, they could probably return to a nuclear weapons capability, a significant uh, amount for one uh, nuclear device. So you shrink very much at the end of that time. It doesn't mean they're going to do it. Once again, whether we have one year or one week, the question is, if they're moving to a nuclear weapon, what are we going to do about it? And more importantly, what do they think we're going to do about it? Which is why I get to the importance of not just the president, any president, saying that he or she will use military force, but the importance of the U.S. people in the U.S. Congress saying that. That's, in the end, the only thing that's going to stop them from getting a nuclear weapon. And I, and I, I think that's well put. And uh, the comment that was made uh, by either you or Mr. Indyk that, that, that all this is doing is putting things in storage. Uh, for 10 years. I think the American people need to understand that. They need to understand what we're, what we're taking on here. My time is up. But Mr. Indyk was right about, uh, and I, I let the record show that uh, they do change the core of the uh, plutonium heavy water, well, the heavy water plant, and that is the one concrete thing that goes away in this entire agreement as it's uh, laid out. For the period of time that the agreement's in effect. Yeah, uh, for that period of time, exactly, for 15 years. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Ambassador Jeffrey, for uh, sticking with us. Just one quick follow-up. Uh, so we were never going to get a permanent agreement here. So it does matter when you're talking about what's 10 years, what's 15 years, what's 20 years, because we were always going to be talking about a certain period of time and then the world being different after that period of time. It is important to note that one of the 15-year restrictions is on uh, the uh, stored uh, enriched content. That is a 15-year restriction. And so you would agree that even though they will begin to spin more centrifuges after the 10-year period, the fact that should they abide by their continued restriction on how much capacity they have is a significant limitation on their breakout capacity. Absolutely, because then most of their feedstock would be pure uranium, and that does take longer. But again, uh, the one-year period would drop to somewhere between one-half and one-third of that, I believe, uh, in that period between 10 and 15 years. At the end of the 15 years, uh, then almost all restrictions are off because they can enrich up to 20 or any percent uh, uh, from that period on in the amount of stocks they can have is unlimited. But I think, as um, Chairman Corker said, uh, the president himself on NPR uh, some time ago said it's 10 years. Uh, he's changed his mind since then, but uh, I think the 10-year is basically, if you're going to make an argument for this agreement, you should uh, hang your hat, I think, on 10 years, sir. Uh, and, of course, important to note that the inspections last well beyond the 10 to 15 year time frame, uh, which is why many of us would make the argument that it's not a 10 year deal. Um, but I want to come back to this question of this comprehensive strategy uh, to try to push back on Iran's growing influence in the region. I, I do think it's a rewrite of history to suggest that this set of sanctions on Iran to try to change their disposition on a nuclear weapons program was about all of their other behavior in the region. I certainly believed when I was voting for those sanctions that should Iran choose a different path when it comes to a nuclear weapons future that we would engage in a conversation about withdrawing some of those sanctions. And in part, that's why we have a 
separate set of sanctions in place for some of their other behavior in the region, and we reserve the right to increase those sanctions should they uh, not change that behavior. Um, so I understand the moral question Senator Rich is getting at in that we do have to accept that part of this money may be used uh, to support a group like Hezbollah or the Houthis, um, but I think we're just not accepting the premise of the sanctions in the first place if we extrapolate and expand it to all sorts of other behavior in the region. And so let's talk about this more comprehensive approach that both you and Ambassador Indic reference. Um, and I guess part of my confusion is that it often seems to begin and end with a question of increased military capacity that we're going to give to our Sunni partners in the region to try to control the bloodshed once it starts happening, rather than talking about all of the ways in which we can try to tamp down on the reasons that groups like Hezbollah and ISIS and the Houthis have influence in the first place, which is um, deteriorating conditions of government, of rule, of law. Um, that doesn't seem to factor into a lot of our conversations about what we should be doing in terms of growing a comprehensive strategy. And even I think your testimony is, is limited to a handful of military tools that you're recommending. Um, as we sort of grow this comprehensive strategy next to a nuclear agreement, isn't it more important uh, to be uh, putting in place a set of non-military tools so that the conditions aren't so ripe for both Sunni and Shia insurgencies in these regions uh, instead of simply having conversations about what our military toolkit is? Uh, you're absolutely right, uh, Senator. The reason I focused on the military is that uh, it's often the long pole in the tent in any administration I would argue, parenthetically, particularly in this one, but frankly, I've seen every administration, Republican and Democratic, have hesitations about using military force. Military force is a necessary but not sufficient uh, part of the package to deal with the Iranian threats to the region, which again are not mainly about direct military aggression on uh, the Gulf states or our other allies, which F-15s and F-16s and air defense missiles might help, but infiltration in subtle actions. But these subtle actions, be it in Ukraine or the South China Sea or in Iraq or Yemen, have a military component and people are nervous about getting involved militarily if we're not backing them and that requires some use of military force. But many other things are necessary. One of the concerns I have is if we don't get engaged, our allies will go off on our own and they will conduct policies and operations that will be too military, too one-sided, will simply lead to escalation. We tend to bring a certain amount of moderation. I'm a diplomat by profession, not a soldier. And that's what people like me go out and do. We try to leverage our military, our sanctions, our energy, and other policies to get people to sit down and resolve disputes, be it in Syria, be it in uh, uh, Yemen. And we're capable of doing that. Those are all part of the package. But the uh, earnest money on the table, particularly now, but basically always, has to be a willingness, if necessary, to use military force. Uh, that has to be part of the package, and people don't think it is.
Yeah, I, I worry that you may misread where the reluctance lies in Congress today. Um, there doesn't seem to be as much reluctance here to fund the military. The reluctance seems to fund all of the non-kinetic tools that are part of this uh, comprehensive strategy. Um, what about uh, our other sets of sanctions? So we have the ability to increase, maintain or increase sanctions against Iran for the continued development of a ballistic missile program, for their support of um, terrorist groups in the region. Um, what do you make of the potential for a separate set of sanctions and their potential expansion uh, to be part of this comprehensive strategy that we're talking about? Uh, to send a signal, uh, it's always helpful uh, when the U.S. Congress speaks with one voice and does something uh, that is that will get a lot of attention, such as impose sanctions. But on Iran, the really effective sanctions are international ones. Those are the ones that brought it to the table. Uh, and those sanctions are, at this point, narrowly focused on the nuclear account. It would be hard to get UN or even EU sanctions, and certainly global sanctions, on Iran for its activities in Syria, of course, one of its allies is Russia. That's the problem right there. Well, and I think part of the reason that uh, it has been hard to grow international support for those other activities is that the priority has been stopping Iran's nuclear ambition. And so to the extent that you take that issue off of the table, at least for a short period of time, back to how Ambassador Indyk described it, it gives you the room in which to build a comprehensive set of international sanctions with or without a country like Russia to influence their other behavior. Um, thank you. I'm over time. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you. Uh, Ambassador Jeffrey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Ambassador Jeffrey, both for being here and for staying um, for people like me who had another hearing, and so I'm late coming to this. Um, there's been a lot of speculation about if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, what that does to nuclear proliferation in the region, that the Saudis then follow, then other countries will feel like they need to do that. Um, so is there some reason to think that if, um, if there is success in the final negotiations that that could have the opposite effect for the region, that it would help to um, address some of the concerns that we've heard from other countries? We've heard... Uh non-official Gulf state uh, personalities openly and more official ones behind the scenes say this is an option if we're not happy with the result. Uh, I think it is a possibility. Uh, Ambassador Indyk in his uh, written testimony uh, took a somewhat different view that I, I urge you to take a look at as well. Uh, what I think is our friends in the region are going to look at everything we're doing. It is definitely not the policy of this administration or any conceivable American administration to have anybody in the region developing mm -hmm. a breakout nuclear capacity, let alone actual nuclear weapons. So we're not going to be in favor of that. The more we're doing things that they need for their security that are hard for us to do, and that gets to the long pole of the military again, the more influence we're going to have to persuade them not to go down that road. The more they're feeling lonely, ignored by us, threatened by Iran, and there's a certain pride here, well, if Iran can have it, why can't I? Uh, then uh, they're going to uh, 
uh, be more interested. Uh, again, uh, Ambassador Indyk in his testimony talked about a uh, uh, possible nuclear guarantee over the region. That's another idea uh, that uh, these kinds of things that involve American commitments, particularly military commitments, will give us more leverage to try to persuade these people not to go down that route. But it remains open to them. If they don't like what they're hearing and particularly seeing out of Washington and in our actions in the field, there's a real possibility some of them might go in this direction. Sure. Um, well, so talk a, a little bit more, if you would. I, I know it's Ambassador Indyk's idea about the extension of the U.S. nuclear deterrent um, umbrella for some of the countries in the region, but um, do you see that as um, making, making a real difference, and how will um, countries like Iran react if we do that post-negotiation? I think rather like my suggestion for uh, an advanced authorization for the use of military force, which Ambassador uh, Indyk was a little bit uh, equivocal about, uh, I would be a little bit equivocal about that. But both of us are trying to do the same thing. We're looking desperately for ways for the United States to show symbolically that we're in the game for these people, be it by decisions by Congress, be it by nuclear commitments. There are other ways. Uh, uh, one or the other should be tried to, among other things, deter these people from uh, trying to get their own uh, nuclear capabilities. Uh, people are not, ha uh, I'm talking to the, uh, preaching to the prior here, people in the region are not happy with this agreement. Um, well, so go, to go back to Senator Murphy's line of questioning around, um, you have suggested um, a range of other security supports for um, countries in the region. But as we're looking at other potential ways to um, shore up the direction in which we would like them to go, what other options do you think are most important for us to be looking at? So let's put the security situation in one side. But what about on the economic, the other um, supports that we can provide? What's most important there? Um, Senator, I would say uh, Ambassador Indic, uh, indicated this and some members of your committee have, uh, preserving the nation states, preserving the stability of those states in the region against both local forces and these pan-Islamic forces, be it Shia or be it Sunni. That is the threat we're all facing. That has a military component, but you rightly said, what are the other components? For starters, we shouldn't pick fights with these people. We should be careful about talking about their internal situations because right now in a crisis situation, we're not going to be able to do too much about it. And uh, there's ways you can do this quietly. There's ways you can do it in a open and crude fashion. We shouldn't do the latter. That's one thing. Uh, then targeted economic assistance for refugees, for groups that are uh, potential generators of instability is another. Uh, Yemen leaps to mind, Syria leaps to mind, and more willingness to tie our military, which I have to keep coming back to, to a negotiated solution. Uh, there are ways to resolve Syria, but they require both sides being ready to stop fighting. Right now, one isn't. Um, well, I, I hear what you're saying, but it appears to me that 
this is what we've tried to do in a number of countries in the region. Yemen certainly is in that category. Egypt is in that category. I think Syria um, early on was in that category, and yet um, it, has, it has not led to success. And so what's the missing ingredient? Not enough military might. I think there's been, there's a lot of concern um, that I hear from people in this country about engaging in troops in the same way that we have done in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 13 years. So, so how do we get, what are the missing ingredients that need to be included in order to get to success? Um, in a somewhat happier period of my life before I was totally involved in Near Eastern affairs, I was involved in the Balkans. And we had two conflicts there. And you remember at one point, Bosnia seemed to be more intractable than Syria, and almost as many people died there in a country one-tenth the size, right in the middle of Europe. When we went in, a lot of the attention was on our military, our bombing campaign, and again later in Kosovo, four years later, but it was actually a whole series of international diplomatic efforts to mobilize the international community, uh, passing the claims of all of the sides so that everybody would get somebody out of this, offering for governance, economic support, caring for refugees. It was an entire package that was put together and led by the United States that had an, uh, a, obviously a flashy military element, but had many other elements as well. And it worked in Bosnia. And when the Milosevic regime didn't get it and tried the same thing again four years later, we did it again in Kosovo. And this time, the Serbian people decided they had enough of him. But these were limited conflicts. Our military use was restrained, and it was backed by diplomacy, by international legitimacy through the UN in the first case, NATO in the second, and by economic and development programs that are continuing to this day. So that's what I would point to. And again, you know, I, I don't it appears to me that that's what we're, we've been trying to do in many of these countries, and yet we haven't seen the same level of success. I said happier days because the Balkans, while they seemed intractable, are a lot more difficult than the Middle East. Any of us who are out there who spend a lot of time there know there are no easy answers to the underlying problems. We point to the underlying problems as why you have these uh, accelerants of violence, of instability, of social breakdown, but w neither we nor the people of the region have figured out how to deal with them. And uh, uh, there is not going to be any uh, final and complete solution without uh, dealing with those. But for the moment, we're in a crisis situation and we have to put out the flames. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you for your testimony and your service to the country. And without objection, the record will remain open until the end of the day Friday. Hopefully, you and Ambassador Indyk uh, will respond to questions that are asked. Uh, we thank you again, and uh, the meeting is adjourned.